Hello and welcome to The Violin Chronicles, a podcast in which I will attempt to bring to life the stories surrounding the famous, infamous, or just not very well known, but interesting, violin makers of history. My name is Linda Lesbe. I'm a violin maker and restorer. I graduated from the French Violin Making School some years ago now. I currently live and work in Sydney with my husband Antoine, who is also a violin maker and graduate of the French school, L'École Nationale de Lutherie in Mirecourt. As well as being a luthier, I have always been intrigued with the history of instruments I work with, and in particular, the lives of those who made them. So often when we look back at history, I know that I have a tendency to look at just one aspect, but here my aim is to join up the puzzle pieces and have a look at an altogether fascinating picture. So join me as I wade through tales not only of fame, famine, war and plague, but also of love, artistic genius, revolutionary craftsmanship, determination, cunning and bravery that all have their part to play in the story of the violin. Welcome back to The Violin Chronicles and part three about the world of Gasparo de Salo, instrument maker, businessman and collector of needy nephews and nieces. In the last two episodes, we've seen how Gasparo has led a successful career as a violin maker, or a luthier is perhaps a better word, as he didn't just make violins, but a variety of instruments in Brescia. After humble beginnings moving to Brescia as a young man, he has made a name for himself, and he seems to have taken his family responsibilities quite seriously. In this episode, we will continue to look at Gasparo's life, and Maxime Bibel, double bassist in the Australian Chamber Orchestra, will be talking to us about the wonderful Gasparo de Salo instrument he plays on and its story. Gasparo came from humble origins, son of a musician or instrument maker who died too early, leaving his family to pick up the pieces and move to the city to try their luck in business. Entering his workshop now, there is a profusion of activity. His son and assistant are working at benches, finishing instruments that will be sent to France. When there is an overflow of work, he ropes in his other children to help out. The more the merrier. Business continues to flourish. Gasparo and Isabella are able to buy their own house and workshop. Family responsibility was something that weighed strongly on Gasparo's shoulders. When his sister and his in-laws died in the recent plague, Gasparo felt he had to take responsibility for his nephews and nieces. He knew better than anyone what it was like to lose parents. And with his connections to the other artisans, there was always opportunities to find work and apprenticeships. And help out he would. One less thing to worry about was Ludovica. He was able to breathe a sigh of relief. It was done. Woohoo! Now he just had to sort out her dowry. The match with the fur merchant was a good one. Ludovica had a good grasp of business matters. At the age of 22, she was ready to move out and have a family of her own. But not too far away, still in Brescia. She knew she could always come and ask her favourite brother for help if she needed to. There's an interesting story of Gasparo's little sister who was 12 when she started living with them. Uh, so he'd, at this point he had two, when he was in his late 20s, he had two young sons and his 12-year-old sister Ludovica comes and lives with them. And then she grows up and when she's about 22, she gets engaged to a, um, a furrier. Uh-huh. A fur. Yeah, a furrier, yeah. Merchant. And were they, was, 
at that time, what were furriers doing? Was it just collars? Dr. Emily Brayshaw is an honorary research fellow at the University of Technology, Sydney's School of Design. Oh, no, 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 it was everything. So, um, you know, we actually have collars definitely, but also gloves, muffs, um, trims on hats. We know that people wore doublets and these are a style of jacket that came together at the middle. There's a men's wear. So it's a snug fitting jacket that's shaped and fitted to the man's body. The doublet gave a fashionable shape and padding to the body. And um, it also supported the hose, like the pants, by providing ties. So you could tie your hose to the doublet. And it also gave warmth to the doublet. But richer men would slash it and show the lining underneath. And sometimes we have images of this being fur. So you'd have like fur trim poking out, you'd have fur collars, you know, you could wear fur coats as much fur as you want to. And when we talk about fur also from the era, it's uh, really interesting, like they're all different types of fur that was worn. So um, Brescia, there are um, portraits of one of the young noblemen from the era wearing a gigantic collar made of lynx. Wow. For, yeah, but people also wore uh, otter. Uh, what else were they wearing? Do you think the lynx would be more classy than the Oh, otter? that's like, um, so, yeah. So would you look down on the otter wearing it depends one with your what lynx you were, coat? It depends what you were wearing the otter, the otter for, right? So we've got, um, there are records of kind of nine different types of fur, so including lynx, of course, sable, ermine, which, you know, the super rich wore, also squirrel. <laughs> Otter, you know, these kinds of furs, you know, and yeah, obviously the richer you are, the more ritzy your furs. But it's really interesting that the family is kind of positioning itself. So DeSalo's family are really positioning themselves in the luxury goods market, right? He's got the fine instruments. His little sister's gone into the fur trade. He's got another, is it the nephew doing the fine kid gloves and the perfumes? He's got the shoemaker. And there's this, um, this interesting little story with Ludvika, his little uh-huh. sister. So she, when she gets married, she has a dowry supplied by um, Gasparo, but her five other brothers as well. Uh-huh. And also she has a generous um, amount supplied to her dowry by the Count Alfonso Capri- Capriatis. Uh-huh. And it's a bit of a mystery why he he contributes. Uh, uh, Do we know his relationship to the family or what he so, did? So um, the Capriatis, were, they were an important family in Brescia. Yeah. They often engaged musicians to play for them. Right. And so they had a relationship of sorts with musical families in Brescia. And, but there is a suggestion that Ludvika and the Count could have met under other circumstances. But then again, he could have just, you know, had a burning passion for the arts. Yeah, he might have just been wanting to, like, get in good with the best instrument makers, you know, and and coming back to this story of the noble woman who's like, oh, yes, I had the entire set made by DeSalo. And, you know, and this guy's like, yeah, well, I know him better than that. I paid his sister's dowry. Mm -hmm. You know, (laughs) again, a lot of this is about appearances and a lot that's done is really closely scrutinized as well so particularly among the noble families Brescia, Florence, these areas 
if you're not dressed correctly for the occasion, like we were talking about with the women in their funeral before, you could really attract ridicule. Perceptions of dress were at the forefront of processes around honour and shaming. So it might also be part of this, you know, like these perceptions, this largesse. I've got the means to support the... The dowry. Yeah. Now in his early 40s, Gasparro is run off his feet. He has a household of children. The older ones can help out in the workshop or look after the younger ones. They have just bought a small country property out of town. Hopefully the local farmer he put in charge of cultivating the olive groves and fields yield a good harvest this year. Tragically, one of his brothers-in-law died a few months ago. To help out his sister, his niece and nephew are living with them. With the help of his resourceful wife, they will be sure to find a husband for his niece and a trade for his nephew to learn. Amongst their fellow craftsmen, they found a perfect husband for Katarina, a shoemaker. And after asking around, Gasparri is able to organise an apprenticeship for their nephew to learn the trade of glove maker and perfumer. This brings us to the question of what place these artisans occupied in society. John Gagné. It's, I think there's a struggle in the 16th century exactly around these terms, which is the, um, the honor of artisans who work with their hands. And maybe the place where, I mean, I've studied more is in the history of painters, where painters have this transformation um, from the 15th into the 16th century, where they become sought after as um, noble artisans. And it wouldn't surprise me if Luthier followed the same kind of pathway. I mean, they're producing highly beautiful objects for very knowledgeable collectors um, or, you know, sort of big patrons like the church or, you know, or a court. And so my sense is that they would be, and they're also basically um, not an industrial level. Let's say, you know, by comparison, another large industry in Brescia at that time, the gun makers, I mean, they're working with hundreds and hundreds of men in really dirty conditions. And that's not the world of, you know, intarsia workers who are more in the world of, let's say, um, printmakers who've got small workshops, often with their families there. So I think they probably already just on that level have a lot more steam because they're, so they're probably, you know, um, making their way up to the level of, but not yet quite at the level of like doctors and lawyers, but they're probably at the level of, you know, um, uh, you know, other tradesmen like leather workers, tailors, shoemakers, you know, the people who are providing necessities and luxuries of the everyday. Some painters are now in the 16th century vaulting into, you know, international prominence. They're sought after by courts, but frankly, so are many musicians, right? Singers, composers, some instrument makers are becoming desired and they're requested to visit court or country. So I, I think it's there's probably a, let's say there's opportunity for social mobility, which is very interesting in the 16th century where, you know, these people who had been in previous centuries kind of stuck in uh, the dusty choir lofts, you know, putting little pieces of wood in places, have now got an opportunity to show off their craft as individual artisans. In Gasparro's life, there were about 18 monasteries and the monasteries were really centres of art, of music, of creativity. So there was this, this huge burgeoning of activity going on coming out of the sack previously. When Gasparro was in his 
about his 40s. That's when he would have got the order for this this double bass that we have here in Sydney. Oh, yeah. This, uh, that has this beautiful um, inlay, the purfling. The purfling. I will just explain what perf. Do you? Yeah, no, you as a I do musician, not know. I don't know. As my a, as my a viola doesn't have it. My viola is a 20th century viola. So. What is it drawn on? No, it's not. Emily Brayshaw. But you do have purfling and you don't realise it. Oh. You do. So purfling, if you look closely at your violin, you will see two black lines running uh-huh. around the contour of the oh, instrument. Oh, yes. It's like narrow and uh, decorative edging almost. Yes. And uh, so it's inlaid to the top in the back plate. And what it is is actually three small strips of wood. It goes black, white, black. And uh, mine doesn't a- have white, I don't think, but I do recall that Barry, I call my instrument Barry, um, after Barry White, the soul singer, because you hit that C string and it's like, oh, baby, you know, lay me down by the fire. So I was, I will check out Barry and see if. So, so often it's tinted wood. Uh-huh. You'll have black tinted wood, white tinted wood, black tinted wood. If uh-huh. you look closely, it probably is there. And then you will, you'll make a groove in the instrument and you will push it in. You will inlay right, it. Right. Okay. Um, so on this double bass, the characteristic of Brescian instruments is they used ebony, which is a oh, notoriously yeah. difficult wood to work with and not very flexible. Right. And they, on this double bass, there's this intricate sort of zigzaggy. It's what what would you call that sort of design? Geometric. Just call it like an ornamentation. It's it is kind of geometric. It's interwoven. It was a highly decorative, highly ornamental era, all done in, you know, at the top of the, in, in beautiful taste. But, you know, Italy long has this reputation for being, you know, a little bit, a little bit flamboyant, a little bit passionate, a little bit elegant. And, you know, why not extend that into your crafts? Even the armour, you see the armour made in Brescia. Yeah. And it's not just your know, suit of armour, it's got these these engravings, these intricate patterns, these pictures, yeah. these scenes on it. It's like they turn it into a work of art. It's yeah. Good and craftsmanship. Yeah, you say, see that in the tailoring too, like in the very fine embroidery in the clothes. Yeah. You know, and again from um, materials that are often quite difficult to work with and unwieldy. So, you know, with fabrics, the finer something is, the more delicate something is, the more unusual something is, the trickier it is to work with, you know. And so, you know, this is doing, this is an ebony inlay. This is also almost like a craftsman's flex. Yeah. You know, it's like not only do I make the best goddamn bases, I can do it with ebony. Which is expensive. More expensive it's, than you Yeah, it's poplar. more expensive and boom, it's hard to work with, you know. So Gasparro, he's got this like really, he's got this thriving workshop. He's uh, got lots of orders. He's got people helping him out. They're, he has like the normal dramas of a workshop. You've got this, this Count Anisto Zanetto who owes him all this money for instruments. He's not paying. Oh, of course he's not paying. Um, and he has to pay suppliers for wood in Venice. He'll get his wood from Venice. He gets his strings from Rome. Uh-huh. Uh, and they come via uh, a monastery. So the monastery will order these strings and he'll go to the monastery and okay. pick up the strings. Yep. They were sort of the, the dealers. Right. Um, because monasteries had a lot of music happening. Oh, definitely. They had but these... also connections. Yeah. Yeah. 
And the church was spending a lot of money on, on music and art and the church is flexing too in the face of the English Reformation. It's like, uh, no, don't even think about this here. Whereas, of course, the Swiss have got like um, the Reformations happening as well, you know, and Lutherism and Germany and, you know, Italy, of course, being the centre of Catholicism. It's just like... Luther actually prints uh, one of the first versions of, I think it might be the Old Testament, in Brescia. Ah, wow. Yeah, they had printing presses because they had the the wood uh, and paper was another famous, um, you know, another thing that Brescia was famous for was for paper as well. I'm uh, Maxim Bibo. I'm the principal bass of the Australian Chamber Orchestra. Um, the instrument I play is possi possibly an earlier one. It is very, very large, very big, and I can't understand how anyone could play these at the time. It was probably made for a church, a monastery, where it was found in Brixen, Neustift Monastery. Uh, it was found there in the 70s by a player in a state of disrepair and black, full of soot. It would have been used to double up the sound of the organ in the chapel. And there are many accounts of music from the creation of the monastery in 11-something rather. I've even, even found inside some inscriptions that says it was fixed by the chapel carpenter in 17-something rather. So um, it would have been there. The other desalos that were found, I guess, in the last few decades were all found in monasteries. So they would have come at a fairly high price due to the amount of wood used to make them. The quality of the wood is incredible. The hazelfishter, the bear claw spruce on it is like no one's ever seen before. Seeing the whip on the instrument, it's got small wings on the edges, but uh, there's still 266 rings on one side, 267 on the other side. And I think the earliest ring is 1166. The latest one is 1534, the day Canada was discovered by Jacques Cartier. <laughs> Dendrochronology is the scientific method of dating tree rings. It enables us to see when the tree was alive and growing. So we know that the timber used in this instrument came from a tree that was growing in 1166. Genghis Khan was a child at the time. Until the latest tree ring that was in 1534, the year Henry VIII of England became head of the Church of England. Now he can get the ball rolling on some divorce proceedings. In any case, this was timber that had been around since before Gasparo was born, and the age of the tree itself is something quite amazing. They're so far apart from each other, those pasalos. It, it's really hard to compare them, and they, a lot of them have been cut down um, or simply made slightly smaller. I, I tried one, I played one in uh, the town of Salo. Uh, more petite one, and I'd love to try the one that lives at uh, St. Marco Cathedral in Venice, which used to be owned by or played by Domenico Dragonetti, which is the one, very interestingly so, um, that was in London in the late 1700s, which inspired all the local makers, the English makers, to copy that form, that shape, and created the school of um, English basement. So they all, yeah, they all took slight 
slight variations on, on that model, but it's all based on that specific instrument. So I happened to own a Thomas Kennedy, and when I tried the, the cello, I thought, okay, it's bigger, it's slightly different, but in its essence, the, I felt there was a connection, and furthermore, I found a connection. I finally uh, saw the bass that uh, Dragonetti was playing has a bridge on it made by Thomas Kennedy. The solo was known as a wealthy man in his days, not a, a poor artist. It sounds like he was doing very well for himself um, and played the instrument as well. So maybe that's what made it so special because he did play the basses. He did play, apparently, play them in consort. It did probably lower the uh, lower voice uh, down the octave. This, this is the most remarkable sort of inlays that I've seen. You hope to find a painting or a drawing, something that correlates to that instrument because it's so specific, the inlays, that there's nothing else like it. And no, we have yet to find anything of the kind. Purfling, as we mentioned before, is the decorative inlay that traces the contour of the violin. And on most instruments, there is one simple set running around the edges of an instrument. But in Brescia, there was a tendency to really go for it and to do fancy designs. The second row of purfling traced inside the first, or swirly motifs that covered various parts of the instrument. I think it's very special, um, and the people that tried it as well, um, if you can get around it, it's, uh, it's sheer width is a, a real challenge. So um, when I'm showing it to specialists, uh, I believe that it was made as a three-stringer not as six stringers. During those years, there was these were the transition years, and uh, so who made the first double bass from a violin shape? We're not sure, but it's around that, that time for sure, very close to it. It's very close to being double bass number one, that's why I keep saying it. It's the original subwoofer. And how much bigger is it than the standard double bass? Um, string length at this point is definitely for to five or six centimeters longer, uh, depending on your standard, what your standard is. And the, the size of the body is definitely 10% bigger um, yeah, than your average English size instrument. The thickness of the ribs is normal though, which is a saving grace, otherwise I wouldn't be able to play it. Um, it's very wide, very, very wide, crazy wide. Um, I think the bottom bout is uh, six centimeters wide, which is basically higher than your dining table. <laughs> oh wow, it's like a small boat. But I think that's where the depth of the sound comes from. Yeah. Um, double basses with slopey shoulders have a, a thin, shallow sound, and it's, it, there's something in its sound, and it's um, there's a lot of wisdom in it. Uh, it's very hard to describe it. There's a lot of depth, a lot of depth, and it, strangely enough, works best with other instruments around or on stage. That's where you get the full impact of it. Some instruments sound good close up and in the distance the sound loses. This one, it gets better with distance. Um, seemingly sound waves really come together at 10 meters. It seems to be the ideal spot to listen to it. And also the, the depth of its sound and, and, and like a great singer, like the strength of its diaphragm, a support in its sound, if you be extremely quiet or very loudly, the, the, that it, it always has that massive support, like uh, just a, a great bass singer, um, throughout its range. Um, 
it's really, really fine. But you get to hear that with other string instruments around and, and then you feel the stage move. <laughs> I had a colleague play it um, the other day and I was definitely four meters away. I kid you not, I could feel the floor move um, with it. So it's remarkable. And obviously the history that when it's done, you always wonder if it could tell its story where it's been. You know, I have a feeling has not been played a huge amount because it would have been played for some services, not every day. And there are accounts of the young monks uh, playing it on the weekend, just having fun with it. And one had lessons in Bolzano. Like, I think it's never been played as much as it has been in the last eight years. Um, and I've been trying to play everything I could possibly do Renaissance music to modern, to burial sequences on it. And um, yeah, I think our relationship keeps evolving because it's a long-term one, hopefully. Yeah, we did a lot of work on the setup. Um, and then feels it left Germany in winter, arrived here in December, just before Christmas. And it was in a state of shock, I'd say for two months. And then we had some work done on it to adjust it to my liking and the way I play. When, whenever you come to a concert, when I play on the E string, like it's, it's so big, so wide. It's... So I find the, the instrument has this ability to resonate with its environment a lot. And, and the bigger the space, the, the more you, you feel what it it does to everything else around, just like a subwoofer. So it's not necessarily directional, but um, the low end of it is just absolutely remarkable. Um, it was never made to play that low. It was never made to be played that high, but throughout its register, it's it's nice and open and you know, it's been played a lot of late. Yeah, it's a privilege every time. It does get me a little tired at times. <laughs> I wish I'd play something a little smaller. You know, I just have to play this one note and it gives you this incredible feeling of power. I remember when we were looking at purchasing it or having someone purchase it uh, for us, for me to play. Um, someone had said that it was not the right instrument for the ensemble because it was too big and lumpy. And stubborn me said, no, 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 I am playing against Stradivarius and Adele Jesu and Amati Cello and, and I need as much power as I can. I decided that I was going to try to make my playing and make the instrument as agile as possible. And I, because it's so special and beautiful that I really wanted to own it and do uh, all that repertoire on it. Um, it was worth spending the time for the, on the relationship, getting all these physio appointments for me to be able to get around uh, the instrument without, without hurting myself. Stretching your arms. Yeah, and reinforcing some, some my, my support as well, the way I hold myself, and uh, whether it's standing up or sitting down, but you, you just need to play the one note and then you understand why and why it's worth it. Yeah, it, it gives you a great feeling of power. So I, for it to be nimble, agile, quick, took a little while for me and probably the instrument to change for us to work on a relationship. But um, I think we've gotten there in the end. So it's very exciting. When um, the base originally arrived in Sydney in December, uh, humid Sydney in December versus uh, leaving Frankfurt in the middle of winter where it was dry. It was in a state of shock for quite a few weeks. 
I guess the wood, different types of woods were adapting to its new climate at different rates. Part of the work I had done on the instrument, I had a, an extension, C extension added to it uh, that brings, gives me uh, notes all the way down to the low C with capos when I don't need, don't want to jump. I remember the first few times I, I got a bit worried because the it, below E flat, it was not really working. It wouldn't, <laughs> it was not it really happy to give me those frequencies. And um, yeah, a few weeks later, it embraced it, and now it roars to the halls uh, with those notes. It's uh, amazing how the wood, and I still, I wish I could understand. Do you guys understand um, how the wood just gets used to vibrating a certain way? And even though they're very close frequencies, it's like, uh -uh, I'm not going to do this. And it's like, please, <laughs> I'm going to, you know, trick you, trick you into liking this, and. and um, and then it does eventually. John Dilworth talks to us about the Breton way of approaching an instrument. The Gaspar and the Breton ones in general, Magini and Gaspar, they do vary a lot. And I don't think they even used a mould at all. I think that's another big, you know, it's a very sort of nerdy observation from a violin maker's point of view. But I do think it's quite significant that Amati and Strat, all the Cremonese, you know, you can take out and they will just lay on top of each other perfectly. They used moulds, they used them beautifully, and it was all part of the intention to make something distinct, geometrically harmonious. You know, once you've designed this shape, you want it to be finished exactly according to what you've designed. It's an artistic thing. Whereas the all the Brescian stuff is is clearly much more improvised. And he had a he might have had a drawing which he could tweak and did and you know, change his mind and blah, 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 blah. but he wasn't fixed to a mold. He didn't have to make a new mold each time he made a new instrument. In my opinion, and from my own observations, I think that Gaspar didn't use a mold and he didn't use linings and he didn't use corner blocks. But the, the ribs are quite thick. So they're sort of self-supporting. But he just bent them to a drawing and put the thing together. Yeah, there are limits. You, you can't bend those ribs to a sort of Stradivarian, the ribs meet like that. They don't do that elegant overlap. They just go, because they're not supported by a block. And you see this thing where the inside is carved. The carving in the inside actually bears very little relationship to the edge. You know, the, um, he sort of, he, you can see him diving down with the gouge, you know, a nice safe margin away from the ribs. It is an intriguing thing that there's this big flat, platform all around the inside of the of the ribs you know far more than you would need for linings but even then it, it didn't have any linings in the first place it's, it's quite strange all sorts of very profound differences in the making technique between Brescia and Cremona and you always get this really crazy um, toothed finish 
and I have it in mind all the time that you have this thing called a ball rasp. You know, it's a, it's a rasp, but it, it it's like a knuckle duster, and you there's no sign of a thumb plane or a scraper or anything on the inside. It's it's he sort of gouged it and then got this big rasp. Like a tennis ball. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, oh, were they the, the shoemaking tools? Was that the... So Yes, absolutely right. A connection with the clog makers. Back to the shoes. Yeah, oh, I think we're, we're beyond something here. <laughs> but I th- there is a really interesting issue about the, the pine, that all the violins... But there's a very important distinction between all the instruments that Gaspar made as violins or violas use imported Swiss pine, alpine pine, exactly as the Cremonese that comes from the same source. But everything he made beyond the violin family, all the the basses, so-called cellos and um, viols and braccias and all these things, are made with this local Brescian wood. It, it grows on the the shores of the lake, Lake Garda, and and it's got this very it's got this very distinct, strong hazel figure running across. It's very very distinctive, and he used that a lot, but he never used it on violins and violas. But he used it for all the other stringed instruments he made. And this wood, it is definitely a, a separate species, and it is low altitude pine. It's not grown up on a mountainside and I find it really interesting that he d- he clearly made a conscious decision not to use that when he was making a violin you're essentially working with deeply figured pine and you know you know what it's like working deeply figured maple and it's just the same really it chips and it's bugger um but I assume that it was easily available to him and therefore a lot cheaper and he didn't mind it chipping a bit you know you well you can see just from his general workmanship it, that wouldn't have bothered him much but when he was making a violin he seems to be aware that he needs to work to slightly raised standards of finish but the materials very important and and the other that sort of argues against a lot of what i was saying is in Brescia they always 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 and then always again used ebony for the purfling and if it's an absolute giveaway, you know, somebody shows you, I've got this lovely Brescian violin here, and you, you just take a quick squint of the perfume. No, you haven't. I'm sorry. It's a German fake. But they used ebony. And if you've ever tried to use ebony perfling, it's it's not a walk in the park. It's one of these remarkable things. That you, the Cremonese perfling, you know, the poplar and pear, it's just got just the right combination of, it's rigid enough that it'll take a, lovely curve and if you've made a few slips in the in the channel it'll just ride through that beautifully but it, it's flexible enough to bend nicely it, it just works it's perfect um and probably in layers and decorative cabinet makers have been using that forever even then always in Brescia use ebony which is an absolute nightmare really um but whether it's because it they, it saves them the trouble of staining it i i don't know but the only way i found to do it is to inlay it in three separate pieces awfully tricky and that works you you do get a lot of gaps but you, you get you see that in the original instruments and it's all filled with paste and stuff and the and the central core i had that identified at, at 
the Kew Gardens Laboratory, and it is spindle tree wood. To all intents and purposes, it's it's the same as boxwood. And um, again, you've got sets of very rigid. You can't glue those three straight. You know, ebony, boxwood, and ebony, and then expect to bend it. The only way you can do it is to put them in separately, and that's very fiddly. Um, that's the way they chose to work. I mean, it, it's not totally thought through in the way that the Cremonese instruments always are. You know, just the attention to detail. It, what I was going to say, it was a very expensive material. Uh, it was clearly already in use for inlaying and decorative work. So there, there's a supply of it, but you only ever see it in thin. So my Baroque fingerboards are just veneered with ebony that to, to make a... A solid ebony fingerboard would have been impossible, I think, at the time. But it was being, particularly Venice, I mean, they they were, Venetian merchants were getting all sorts of exotic stuff from the Far East. I mean, I'm sure you could get it quite easily, but it would have been very expensive, um, anything imported. And they didn't use it for pegs or tailpieces or anything like that. The, the pegs were all made out of pear or plum or things like that, just sort of hard fruit wood. Also, <laughs> Bizarre thing that they they put in twice as much purfling as everybody else did. You know why? You've got this really difficult stuff to manage, and it's actually quite expensive. So what do you do? You put you do it twice, and then put all these decorative. You know you've seen these ones with fleur de lis and things inlaid on the back. You know that's a huge amount of work with this really um, unfriendly material. But they they felt well. I'm talking specifically about Gaspar. They felt that was worth doing. Have you heard the story about the maple that the Venetian gondoliers would reject and send to the violin makers? How much truth do you think is in that story? It's it's plausible, absolutely plausible that they they were importing wood from the Balkans to the Venetian shipyard to the Arsenale, and they would reject. A lot of stuff that was flamed because yeah it's not so it's not good constructional material In 1588, Gasparo is in his late 40s. He still has many dependent family members to support. His son Francesco, 23 now and married, is living with them. His second son and three daughters are still at home. They have a manservant and a maid. Business-wise, things are becoming a bit strained. There are the usual workshop dramas. The Count Ernesto Martinengo da Zanetto owed him 52 lira for instruments he had made months ago, and getting the money out of him was like getting blood out of a stone. He had to pay invoices from his wood supplier in Venice, and he still had to settle an account with Friar Marco Antonio at the monastery for strings he had brought in from Rome. Another spanner in the works was his French connection. France was having another civil war. This one was the war between the three Henrys. It was particularly confusing because three people called Henry were all trying to be the king of France, hence the war of the three Henrys. Anyway, all this meant that DeSalo's agent for his French sales had stopped business and over the last few years he had started depending heavily on the income from these sales. Just to make ends meet, he would have to borrow some money this year until things calmed down in France. He could always fall back on his music. He was, nonetheless, a skilled and sought-after musician, but he needed this extra income to support his household. 
He still had a substantial stock of instruments and his farm was supplying them with a generous amount of beans and olive oil. He just had a cash flow problem. Although there had been some bad blood between the French and the Italians in the past, there was a strong trade link with France that Gasparro relied on. John Gagné explains. Despite what we said earlier about, um, you know, some international border limitations that would make it sometimes costly and troublesome to trade across borders, the demand also makes you do that. Um, Gasparro had a French student in his workshop. So there may have been interesting, you know, apprenticeship possibilities for, you know, young people from around Europe to come work with some of these makers. But my sense is that, I mean, where a lot of stuff gets um, uh, traded in the 16th century is, is at international fairs. That doesn't seem to me like the obvious place for instruments because uh, you probably want a destination with a relatively reliable seller. You don't want to be sending instruments to the fair and then bringing them all back. So my sense is that, you know, you would have agents basically at work in some of the major cities, Lyon, Paris, some of the places perhaps in between. Um, and you would, you know, uh, ship on consignment basically, or, you know, with the expectation of selling a lot of stuff to an interested buyer, basically. The French connection makes a lot of sense. I mean, because there were uh, Italian queens twice, um, in quick succession, I mean, Catherine de' Medici arrives in France in the 1560s and is there until she dies in 1589. And then there's Marie de' Medici who marries Henry IV, and she's queen until 1610, and then she outlives him a little while. So there are two sort of seasons with a very short gap, you know, during Gasparo's kind of um, heyday when there isn't a French queen. But other than that, I mean, it's a there is a strong commerce of. Uh, Italians at court, you know, the Italian art is, as you just said, like tremendously desired in all its varieties, right? Music, sculpture, painting, uh, architecture. I mean, they're all hugely desirous of Italians, comedy, you know, all that kind of thing. Um, so yes, it would make, it makes perfect sense to me that there was a hunger for Italian artisanship in, you know, at the, at the French court and probably regional courts as well. There's a great quote um, of about Mary, Queen of Scots, being greeted in Edinburgh with a serenade played by wretched violins and small rebecks. <laughs> it just you just have this dreadful picture of cold, rainy, these little rebecks violins scratching away. I know. I know. Um. So when Gasparo, in his 40s, he has his son, is now married, has uh -huh. his own children, but still living with him. Yep. And they have a manservant and a maid. So uh -huh. they've also bought a country property which uh, gives them beans, olive oil and uh, wheat. Uh, so he's, you know, he's... He's moving on up. Yeah. Like he's building it up. Yeah. Yeah. But what happens is in France one of his, where he's sending all these instruments and he's basically really relying on it, this income, yeah. there's this another war. Of course there is. The War of the Three Henrys, just <sighs> to make it really confusing. Yeah. And this sort of shuts down the trade. Yeah. Um, as we know, war can really affect trade. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. And supply of things. So that year in 
what I find fantastic is in tax. We learn so much through this. Oh, tax absolutely. Records. And fashion and dress scholars also use taxation records as well for exactly this same purpose. Yeah. So he's saying, you know, I need to borrow some money this year. Um, his godfather is still living in a part of their house. He can't ask him to leave. It's his godfather, but the family's really huge and he, he needs to bit a bit of money to tie it yeah. over until things work themselves out. Um, yeah, so I was just thinking in Australia, we keep our tax records for seven years. Yeah. And, and, and here it's like, oh, no, they must file them somewhere. And then, but here they're like 500 years old. We've got yeah. their tax records. They're like, wonderful historical forever. documents. Yeah. He, But he was also... During this whole time, he was also a violini player. So he played the double bass and uh -huh. he was actually quite good at it. And yeah. uh, so he always had that to fall back on if he really needed to. And so this could actually have been him. You know, what you're seeing him here in this portrait of a Cremonese artist holding, a, a, it looks like a gamba, but it could have been, you know, a bass instrument. Yeah, and I suppose a gamba would have been a bit more... Um, made you look a bit more important than uh, Violini, which is more for accompanying uh, in your accompanying yeah, organ. Yeah, yeah. you're standing up the back. Yeah. It's, yeah, whereas your soloist would be have more of a, a gamble yeah, type and, instrument. Yeah, and that's sort of part of this sort of, um, you know, I guess social media idea of curating your identity, you know, the stories you want told about you. And um, that's very interesting. Something that... Um, struck me as well is I wonder if so all of these instruments are made for somebody um, so whether he gets to meet them and make according to their specifications or whether somebody just writes him a letter and says I want a 15 inch a 16 inch and a 12 inch or what but um, that wonderful bass that the ACO has. So Maxime Bibo is quite tall. And, it's, a, it's huge. And it makes me wonder whether that was specifically made for someone. And, it, you know, it ties into with this idea of tailoring, you know, and having your clothes made for you, having your instruments made for you. Yeah, and as you far know. as we know, there is no other base with this intricate inlay. Often they're just quite simple. This one has a very complicated, it's very beautiful. The wood is amazing. The wood is yeah. ancient. It, yeah, I, it would likely have been a commission, I'd say. Yeah, you know, yeah. And yeah, something like that, yeah. now entering his mid-50s. The workshop is unrivaled in the area, fulfilling orders from wealthy clients locally and internationally. His son Francesco, now in his 30s, is his right-hand man, making instruments alongside him. Helping out as well is his manservant, Batista. He has had other apprentices over the years, but now, at the same time that Shakespeare was writing Romeo and Juliet, set in Verona just down the road from Brescia, Gasparo Bartolotti was taking on a 15-year-old apprentice from Botticino, a town 12 kilometres from the city. Giovanni Paolo Maggini, Gasparo's new apprentice, would become, over the next few years, very important indeed in the story of Breton violin making. Maggini was the son of a shoemaker, well, a failed shoemaker in fact. His business went bust, and then he died. 
1595, leaving Magini's mother to sell land to support herself and the children. That same year, Gasparo took the young Giovanni on as an apprentice, seeing as shoemakers appear to be hanging out with instrument makers a lot here. Perhaps he was a friend of a friend, and Gasparo, being the kind of man he was, employed the boy so that he, in turn, could support his own family. This turned out to be a good move, because as time went on and Gasparo moved into his 60s, his son Francesco existed in his father's shadow. But the young Magini had the enthusiasm, talent and drive to continue the Brescian tradition. Things were changing more and more. People were ordering violins and the demand for viols was dropping off. John Dilworth talks about the emergence of the violin in Brescia. All makers would have had to turn their hands to almost anything, I think, at the time. Before, I mean, the, the violin sort of suddenly, or seems to suddenly appear very dominant at the end of the 16th, well, in the, in the 17th century, and everything else just falls away. They, they, they found a way of making it much louder, which I think, you know, is the soundpost, and um, it suddenly made a quantum leap in development. And before that, it was more like a a rebec or a, a little uh, treble viol and it, it made quite a small noise and it was associated with um, shepherds and uh, peasant dances and um, it wasn't a distinguished instrument until I mean the first really carefully thought out and constructed instruments appear in Cremona in 1564 and thereafter. I think this, this is the point at which some genius invented the soundpost and the bass bar, even. I mean, there's, there's the, the file in the Ashmolean Museum that clearly never had a bass bar. There's no way it can accommodate a bass bar. It was that evolution from you know developing the sort of offset bass bar, having it down one side of the instrument, and then you know it all seemed very counterintuitive that you make this set up this instrument in a completely asymmetrical way. But when you do that, it suddenly does become much louder and forceful. And these little, the, the Renaissance instruments, the Rebecs and sound, they, I am absolutely certain they wouldn't have had that. And they would have just, you know, like these angel consorts in paintings. There'd be this nice little gentle murmuring in the background. And, it, and again, it's all connected with the development of public performance and concert halls and moving from you know, private aristocratic palaces or, you know, just entertainment for the lord and lady over supper to becoming a, pu- a public thing, you know, needing all this extra volume and definition. It is interesting that in the, the Brescian tradition, Gaspar, he makes predominantly violas, he makes relatively quite a lot of double basses, which were actually made as violones, not double basses. All sorts of church uh, establishments would have been clients. And that, uh, yeah, we learn from Tarissio that, or, or again, it's kind of hearsay, really, but um, but he certainly targeted monasteries when he was travelling around Italy looking for old instruments, and a lot of them did turn up there. Um, there were very, very few actual professional players of any sort at that time, or of anything. Musicians would primarily have been amateur, part-time. I think it would have been very hard to make a living as a musician, unless you were attached to a, a palace of some sort. And even then, you would probably mostly have been a, a butler and a footman or something who was asked from time to time to play the violin for, for a posh supper, you know? Um, After cleaning my shoes... Yes, the shoes are the connection. Can you, can you just pick up that yeah, yeah. violin and, and accompany the dinner? 
This is a whole new line of investigation, the role of the shoe in the history of the violin. Chopin. The Chopins, yeah, yeah. So there you go. That's a whole <laughs> exciting new field to investigate. He was quite ambitious. He came to Brescia and he was clearly quite ambitious and he, he got quite rich. And you, you can see from all these tax returns, he was a very wealthy man. But what happens subsequently, uh, you know, his son doesn't seem to have done much. And I don't know, you know, there's one or two instruments that are sort of attributed to him. And he, I think he was just not that interested. And Magini took over instead. And then comes 1632 and um, there's the, the pandemic and Brescia's almost wiped off the map. Gasparro's in his 50s. Um, still, you know, his workshop's probably the most well-known in Brescia. Mm -hmm. And at the same time uh, that he's, uh, he's kind of coming towards the end of his, well, you know, he's over starting to get over the hill in, yeah. in your 50s at that time. Yeah. But it's at this time that Shakespeare writes Romeo and Juliet, which happens in oh. Verona, yes. which is just down the road. We see both men and women of the time wore, um, you know, really the wealthy in particular, wore really bright colours, you know, so it's a riot of colours and um, the more wealthy you were, the richer your fabrics, but also you can afford better quality dyes. But, you know, colours of the era, we can see scarlets, greys, purples, greens, ye yellows, reds, browns, deep violets, a lot of different purples light blues, vermilions, um, we'll have, and this is men and women, um, we'll have cloth embroidered with real silver and real gold thread, you know, amazing hats trimmed with furs and jewels and, you know, I was talking about, and feathers, um, I was talking about the ruffs, um, you know, um, uh, you know, they were also trimmed with furs and jewels. And there was also a garment called the jerkin that men would wear. Sounds like an insult. <laughs> it does a little bit. Jerkin. But they were fascinating. So they were, the jerkin, jerkin was leather and it was worn over the doublet. And we might have even seen something like this in um, Romeo and Juliet, because what is so interesting is so we had, um, you know, I think I was talking about, was I talking about um, the French, uh, the um, Louis, Niccolo di Luigi Caponi, so his portrait um, from 1579. He was extremely rich. He had textile companies in Spain, Portugal, France and Italy. We know that he shopped for gunpowder and weapons in Brescia. Yep. And he was total fashionista. He was like super wealthy. And, um, you know, there are um, lists of his clothing that's extant. But one of the things he had, he had more than 60 leather jerkins. And there was a law actually passed in 1585 banning jerkins because they were considered aggressive. So it's kind of like this leather jacket that was worn over the top, um, sleeveless, and it was very thick and they offered protection and they were worn by um, soldiers. Um, so they were close fitting, usually made of a lighter coloured leather, often without 
sleeves worn over the doublet, but it, they were banned because it was thought that wearing a jerkin encouraged brawling and duels and fights. It's like, you know, because there's this extra layer of stiff padding. So it's like, come and stab me, come yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, you know, brilliant. <laughs> if we think about Romeo and Juliet and the brawls between the Montagues and the Capulets, you know, we may well have seen these um, outlawed jerkins on the stage. I'm not sure. So do you think, um, so in Brescia at this time, could we imagine what we see in Romeo and Juliet, how that's how people would have dressed? Well, no, because historical reproductions, so there's the Globe Theatre in London and um, like English fashion's kind of same, same, but different, doing kind of its own thing. And the fashions on that stage were also being worn by actors and so they were often like hand-me-downs of rich, uh, rich people's clothing. Ah, oh, um, so they were just making do with what they yeah, had. Yeah, making do, making do, making symbolic do, whereas these rich um, Verona families would have totally had all their own thing. I think the best thing we can do to get the idea is to have a look at, again, of portraits of the era of these wealthy, wealthy people to get a sense for what they're wearing. And I was reading that they had these, some, um, a duke had a sleeve just covered in pearls. Yeah. Like costing like the equivalent of millions of dollars. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Because uh, you can. Yeah. Because he can. And because that's expected of him, because he's portraying this you know, again, like wearing the correct dress was such a thing. And if you're not wearing it, you're going to get laughed at. You're going to get ridiculed. Um, something also you were talking about theatre that's really interesting is this Nicola, Niccolo di Luigi Caponi. Um, there are records of what he wore to carnival trips in Florence. And so, and he went to see the Commedia dell'arte performances and these are kind of the very first performances that established like traditions of schooling and clowning and slapstick. Yeah, so we're, we're seeing these conventions there sort of starting here and all of his clothes that he wear to Florence for these performances and for carnival trips, they were really colourful really 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 colorful and silk and shiny and like he's getting into the spirit of carnival as well, well. yeah because yeah. you're you're saying with your clothes like i'm here to party yeah right and and they were <laughs> so romeo and juliet's being written at this point and then at so it's around about this time that gaspar he employs a 15 year old apprentice called from botticino which is a town 12 oh, kilometers yes. from yeah. brescia and this was giovanni paolo maggini mm-hmm. Who could be considered probably more well-known yeah, than yeah. Vasallo? My viola edition of Sebchik has a Magini viola on the front picture of that, and it just says an important viola. Yeah, <laughs> doesn't tell us anything about the viola. It's just you know Thanks, made by Magini at this time, but it's an important viola. Yeah, so Magini um, once again, child of a shoemaker. Yeah, yeah. shoemakers everywhere. Uh, he was 15 and his father was actually a failed shoemaker. His business went bust and then he died. And so Magini's mother, just to make ends meet, had to sell off uh, parcels of land that they had. And the same year, Dasalo takes him on as an apprentice. And we see like throughout his life, he's, he's helping family members. He's helping his sister's children. He's helping his like nephews and nieces, his, his little sister. And he... I think he was quite a quite a nice guy. Like 
um, he takes on this 15 year old apprentice whose father has died and he's he has to you know support his family um, and at the same time Francesco his son you know he was he was making instruments but he wasn't really he just didn't have the drive yeah and with any of these fine crafts that's what differentiates the master from someone who's just kind of good yeah and I think Francesco drive that passion Francesco's life was probably quite easy it had all been literally given to him and here you have Magini he's lost everything and it might have also just been a personal interest as well yeah you know sometimes you do have um people in industries who you know they haven't had a particularly difficult life but they find their passion and it's like oh boy that's that's what I'm that's what I'm here for you know I'm here for the violas <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing it for the violas oh, I'm always here for the violas <laughs> <laughs> so so like so it turned out to be quite a good move on Gasparro's part yeah. because uh Magini uh ended up uh he ended up giving him more uh responsibilities uh Magini we think uh, made a lot of the violins that came oh, out okay. of the yeah. Silo's workshop. And, and Magini actually becomes good friends with the son of Girolamo Viacchi, the, the organ maker. Oh, yeah. And uh, Paolo Viacchi, because he comes back to town after being exiled for 12 years for a crime. Right. But we don't quite know what it was. Okay. But it was bad enough for the magistrates not to want him around. Yeah, it's like, yeah, you go, Sunny Jim. I like, and I like, I like the way how it's like, you've done this really bad thing. We can't be bothered putting you in a prison, so just go away. Yeah. For your sentence, like you're someone else's problem. Like, <laughs> and I'm imagining other people's problems were coming like to them. I don't, this is how it worked. It might have been, but it also might have been things like. Um, it, it might have been something like speaking out against the government or speaking out against the church or nobles or, you know, crimes like treason or something, which or publishing a pamphlet or, you know, these sort of sometimes these political things. It's not, you know, as black and white as, you know, we're going to cut, cut your head off and that's it, sunshine. Yeah. Or, you know, if they're a connection to a wealthy family, you know, maybe it's not politically expedient to cut the head off, but... You know, it's like off you go, sunshine. You're exiled for twelve years. I like to think it was just something sensational. Um, yeah, yeah, that would that be fun. It would be better. Yeah. Yeah. He's sixty-four, mm-hmm. and he's being he was he's empl- he was paid quite a handsome fee to go and play the bass uh, for the uh, the feast of the Assumption. So he, you know, he still has his reputation. Yeah. Um, and you know, that's quite elderly, I suppose, at that time. Um, and not necessarily, you know, if you keep yourself fit yeah. and young and healthy and avoid stuff, the plague, avoid it like it. the plague, avoided like the plague. You and can he's make probably it. having yeah. a healthy Mediterranean diet. Yeah. He's got his beans and olive oil from his farm. He sure does. And he's, you know, staying active. And then, yeah, so slowly, uh, Magini will takes over uh francesco he's still there and then in 1609 gaspar dies and he's buried in a church uh that has links to woodworking uh trade and and apparently there was quite a harmonious uh dividing of his assets oh okay the family uh francesco inherited the workshop and but he's sort of you know he was there but not really there but then next to it you've got this firecracker Magini going yeah, off. Yeah. 
just yeah, bringing you know violin making to another level in Russia. As Gaspar's life was coming to an end, what happened to his workshop and his legacy? Magini became good friends with Girolamo Vierchi's son, Paolo Vierchi, a musician and composer who was newly back in town after 12 years of exile from the Venetian state for a crime he committed. In 1604, Gasparo was invited to play the bass in Bergamo for a handsome fee at the Feast of the Assumption. Even at the age of 64, he still had his reputation for being a fine bass player. Giovanni Magini was turning into an accomplished instrument maker, and Gasparo was entrusting him with ever more work and responsibility. He was especially good at making violins, the soprano instrument becoming more and more popular. But as for Gasparo, no one could make a bass like him. The sound you could get from one of his basses was amazing. He made them not like a large vial, but in the manner similar to that of the violin family. This was the instrument he loved to make and play. In 1609, on a spring day, on the 14th of April, Gasparo Bertolotti died. He was buried in the church of San Giuseppe, a church that had links to the woodworking trade. His death notice reads, Messer Gasparo Bertolotti, maestro di violini, is dead and buried in Santo Giuseppe. After his death, his sons divided up his 14 plots of land, a family home and a country estate. The workshop went to Francesco, who didn't really have the drive to continue his father's legacy and preferred to live off his inheritance. While Magini opened his own workshop and hit the ground running to be the next big thing Brescia saw in instrument making. Today, about 80 of his instruments are known to exist and among those are 12 Dasalo basses that we know of. But it is estimated that between 150 to 200 basses would have left his workshop to be played around Europe. In the case of Brescia, the violin seems to have evolved from the viola which in turn evolved from the viol and the lira da braccia. I also find it fascinating, the thought that Brescia could have developed the double bass in an attempt to emulate the organ in an outdoor setting, and that the violin family seems to have superseded, in a sense, the viol family because of the fact that it was more stable and a less delicate instrument. Musically speaking, we are leaving the Renaissance and moving into the Baroque, where the tenor-voiced instruments so sought after in the Renaissance era were shifting towards the soprano being the principal voice. And the violin family ticked a lot of boxes, being able to generate a very powerful sound. Even more fascinating is that 40 kilometres down the road in Cremona, a very similar process was taking place at around about the same time. What they chose to make and how they made it was vastly different, but to be sure the violin was now unmistakably present and a force to be reckoned with. Thank you so much for listening to these episodes about Gasparo de Salo. I hope you've learned something and have a clearer image of this maker, his life and the world he came from. If you'd like to experience the amazing de Salo bass played by Maxime Bibo, I would encourage you to go along to one of the Australian Chamber Orchestra's concerts where you will not only be able to see the instrument and hear it, but feel the vibrations. And lastly, I would like to thank my lovely guests, John Dilworth, Dr. Emily Brayshaw, Maxime Bibo, Dr. John Gagne, and Fabio Forgione, who did the Italian voiceovers. In my next series, I'll be looking at the Amati family, working down the road in Cremona. Theirs is an extraordinary story, spanning 200 years, their instruments profoundly influencing all of the Cremonese makers to come after them up to the present day. 
And finally, a big thank you to you, the listeners. I'm Linda Leslie, and I hope you'll join me for the next episode of The Violin Chronicles. If you would like updates on future episodes, please subscribe to the podcast. If you'd like to contact us via email, there is theviolinchronicles at gmail.com. And if you want to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at The Violin Chronicles or on Facebook at Lesbeth and Camden Fine Violins.